If I can't depend on you, I don't want to see you near me. Any questions? There was an embarrassed silence, as there always is on such occasions. Then a hand went up. It belonged to a dwarf. Is it true a troll killed the grag? he asked. There was a murmuring from the watchman, and he went on, a little less timorously. Well, he did ask. Captain Carrot is investigating, said Vimes. At the moment we are still in the dark. But if indeed there has been a murder, then I will see that the murderer is brought to justice, no matter what size they are, what shape they are, who they are, or where they may be. You have my guarantee on that, my personal guarantee. Is that acceptable? The general change in the atmosphere indicated that it was so. Good, he said. Now go out there and be coppers. Go on. The room emptied of all except those still labouring over the knotty problem of where they should put the comma. Uh, permission to speak freely, sir," said Detritus, knuckling closer. Vimes stared at him. When I first met you, you were chained to a wall like a watchdog and didn't speak much beyond a grunt. He thought. Truly, the leopard can change his shorts. Yes, of course," he said. You ain't serious, are you? You're not going running after a coprolite like Chrysophrase, sir. What's the worst he can do to me? Uh, rip your head off, grind you to mince, and make soup from your bones, sir," said Detritus promptly. "And if you was a troll, he'd have all your teeth knocked out and make cufflinks out of 'em. Why did he choose to do that now? Do you think he's looking for a war with us? That's not his way. He's hardly going to kill me by appointment, is he? He wants to talk to me. It's got to be to do with the case. He might know something. I don't dare not go, but I want you along. Scrounge up a squad, will you?" A squad would be sensible, he admitted to himself. The streets were just too nervous at the moment. He compromised with detritus and a scratch band of whoever was doing nothing at the moment. There was one thing you could say about the watch: it was representative. If you based your politics on what other people looked like, then you couldn't claim the watch was on the side of any shape. That was worth hanging on to. It seemed quieter outside. Not so many people on the streets as usual. That wasn't a good sign. Ank Morpork could feel trouble ahead like spiders could feel tomorrow's rain. What was this? The creature swam through a mind. It had seen thousands of minds since the universe began, but there was something strange about this one. It looked like a city. Ghostly, wavering buildings appeared through a drizzle of midnight rain. Of course, no two minds were alike. The creature was old. Although it would be more accurate to say that it had existed for a long time, when at the start of all things the primordial clouds of mind had collapsed into gods and demons and souls of all levels, it had been among those who had never drifted close to a major accretion. So it had entered the universe aimlessly, without task or affiliation, a scrap of being blowing free, fitting in wherever it could, a sort of complicated thought looking for the right kind of mind. Currently, that is to say, for the past ten thousand years. It had found work as a superstition, and now it was in this strange, dark city. There was movement around it. The place was alive, and it rained. For a moment, just then, it had sensed an open door, a spasm of rage it could use. But just as it leapt to take advantage, something invisible and strong had grabbed it and flung it away. Strange. With a flick of its tail, it disappeared into an alley. The Pork Futures Warehouse was one of those things—the sort that you get in a city that has lived with magic for too long. The occult reasoning, if such it could be called, was this: pork 
was an important commodity in the city. Future pork, possibly even pork as yet unborn, was routinely traded by the merchants. Therefore, it had to exist somewhere, and the pork futures warehouse came into existence, icy cold within as the pork drifted backwards in time. It was a popular place for cold storage, and for trolls who wanted to think quickly. Even here, away from the more troubled areas of the city, the people on the streets were watchful. And now they watched Vimes and his motley squad pull up outside of the warehouse doors. "'I reckon at least one of us should go in with you,' Detritus rumbled, as protective as a mother hen. Chrysler phrase, won't be alone, you can bet on debt.' He unslung the peacemaker, the crossbow he had personally built from a converted siege weapon, the multiple bolts of which tended to shatter in the air from the sheer stress of acceleration. They could remove a door not simply from its frame, but also from the world of objects bigger than a matchstick. Its incredible inaccuracy was part of its charm. The rest of the squad very quickly got behind him. "'Only you, then, Sergeant,' said Vimes. "'The rest of you come in only if you hear screaming. Me screaming, that is.' He hesitated, and then pulled out the gooseberry, which was still humming to itself. "'And no interruptions, understand?' "'Yes, insert name here.' <laughs> Vimes pulled open the door. Dead, freezing air poured out around him. Thick frost crackled under his feet. Instantly his breath twinkled in clouds. He hated the pork futures warehouse. The semi-transparent slabs of yet-to-be-meat hanging in the air, accumulating reality every day, made him shiver for reasons that had nothing to do with the temperature. Sam Vimes considered crispy bacon to be a food group in its own right, and the sight of it travelling backwards in time turned his stomach the wrong way. He took a few steps inside and looked around in the dank, chilly greyness. "'Commander Vimes,' he announced, feeling a bit of a fool. Here, away from the doors, freezing mist lay knee-high on the floor. Two trolls waded through it toward him. More lichen, he saw, more clan graffiti, more sheep skulls. "'Leave weapons here,' one rumbled. "'Bah!' said Vimes, striding between them. There was a click behind him, and the faint song of steel wires, under tension yet yearning to be free. Detritus had shouldered his bow. "'You can try taking this one off of me if you like,' he volunteered. Vimes saw further into the mist a group of trolls. One or two of them looked like hired grunts. The others, though—he sighed. All Detritus needed to do was fire that thing in this direction, and quite a lot of the organised crime in the city would suddenly be very disorganised, as would be Vimes if he didn't hit the floor in time. But he couldn't allow that.' There were rules here that went deeper than the law. Besides, a forty-foot hole in the warehouse wall would take some explaining. Chrysophrase was sitting on a frost-crusted crate. You could always tell him in a crowd. He wore suits when few trolls aspired to more than a few scraps of leather. He even wore a tie with a diamond pin. And today he had a fur coat around his shoulders. That had to be for show. Trolls liked low temperatures. They could think faster when their brains were cool. That's why the meeting had been called here. Right, Vimes thought, trying to stop his teeth from chattering. When it's my turn, it's going to be in a sauna. Mr. Vimes, good are you to be coming, said Chrysophrase jovially. These gentlemen are all high-toned businessmen of my acquaintance. I expect you can put names to faces. Yeah, the Breccia, said Vimes. Now then, Mr. Vimes, you know that don't exist, said Chrysophrase innocently. We just band together to further troll interests in the city via many charitable concerns. 
you could say we are community leaders. There's no call for name-calling. Community leaders, Vimes thought. There'd been a lot of talk about community leaders lately, as in community leaders appealed for calm, a phrase the Times used so often that the printers probably left it set in type. Vimes wondered who they were and how they were appointed, and sometimes if appealing for calm meant winking and saying, do not use those shiny new battle axes in that cupboard over there, no, not that one, the other one. Hamcrusher had been a community leader. You said you wanted to talk to me alone, he said, nodding toward the shadowy figures. Some of them were hiding their faces. That is so. Oh, these gentlemen behind me, they will be leaving us now said Chrysophrase, waving a hand at them. They're just here so you understand that one troll, that is yours truly, is speaking for the many, and at the same time, your good sergeant there, my old friend Detritus, is going outside for a smoke, would that be the case? This conversation is between you and me, or it don't happen. Vimes turned and nodded to Detritus. Reluctantly, with a scowl at Chrysophrase, the sergeant withdrew. So did the trolls. Boots crunched over the frost, and then doors slammed shut. Vimes and Chrysophrase looked at one another in literally frozen silence. "'I can hear your teeth chatting,' said Chrysophrase. "'This place just right for troll, but for you it freezes the brass monkey, right? Dead why I bring this fur coat?' He shrugged it off and held it out. "'There, just you and me here, okay?' Pride was one thing. Not being able to feel your fingers was another. Vimes wrapped himself in the fine, warm fur. Good. Can't talk to a man whose ears are froze, eh? said Chrysophrase, pulling out a big cigar case. Firstly, I am hearing where one of my boys was disrespectful to you. I am hearing how him suggesting I am the kind of troll that would get personal, that would raise a hand to your lovely lady and your little boy, who is growing up so fine. Sometimes I am despairing of young trolls today. They show no respect. They have no style. They lack finesse. If you are wanting a new rockery in your garden, just say the word. What? Just make sure I never clap eyes on him again, said Vimes shortly. That will not be a problem, said the troll. He indicated a small box about a foot square beside the crate. It was far too small to contain a whole troll. Vimes tried to ignore it, but found this hard. "'Was that all you wanted to see me for?' he said, trying to stop his imagination playing its homemade horrors across his inner eyeballs. "'Smoking, Mr. Vimes?' Chrysophrase said, flipping open the case. "'The ones on the left is okay for humans. Finest kind.' "'I've got my own,' said Vimes, pulling out a battered packet. "'What is this about? I'm a busy man.' Chrysophrase lit a silvery troll cigar and took a long pull. There was a smell like burning tin. Yeah, busy because that old dwarf dies, he said, not looking at Vimes. Well, it was no troll done it, said Chrysophrase. How do you know? Now the troll looked directly at Vimes. If it was, I would have found out by now. I've been asking questions. So are we. I've been asking questions... More louder, said the troll. I get lots of answers. Sometimes I'm getting answers to questions I ain't even asked yet. I bet you are, Vimes thought. I have to obey rules. Why should you care who kills a dwarf, he said. Mr. Vimes, I am an honest citizen, 
It's my public duty to care, Chrysophrase watched Vimes's face to see how this was playing and grinned. All this stupid Coop Valley thing is bad for business. People are getting edgy, poking around, asking questions. I am sitting there getting nervous. And then I hear my old friend Mr. Vimes is on the case, and I'm thinking, that Mr. Vimes, he may be very insensitive to the nuances of troll culture sometimes, but the man is straight as a arrow, and there are on him no flies. He will see where this so-called troll left his club behind, and he is laughing his head off. It is so see-through like glass. Some dwarf did it, and wanted to make the trolls look bad. Q.E.D. He sat back. What club? said Vimes quietly. What's that? I haven't mentioned a club. There was nothing in the paper about a troll club. Dear Mr. Vimes, that's what the lawn ornaments is saying, said Chrysophrase. And dwarfs talk to you, do they? said Vimes. The troll looked thoughtfully at the roof and blew out more smoke. Eventually, he said, but that's just detail, just between you and me, here and now. We understand these things. It is clear as anything that the crazy dwarfs had a fight, or the old dwarf died of being alive too long, or... Or you asked him a few questions. No calling for that, Mr. Vimes. That club is nothing but a red, dried swimming thing. The dwarfs put it there. Or a troll did the murder, dropped his club and ran, said Vimes. Or he was clever and thought, no one would believe a troll would be so stupid as to leave his club, so if I do leave it, the dwarfs will get the blame. Hey, good job it's so cold in it, or I wouldn't be following you, laughed Chrysophrase. But then I ask, a troll gets into a nest of them dazzy deep downers and lays out just one, no way, hose, eh? He'd whack as many of them as he could, thud, thud. He looked at Vimes's puzzlement and sighed. See, any troll getting in there, he'd be a mad troll to start with. You know how the kids are all wound up. People been feeding them that honour and glory and destiny stuff. That coprolite rots your brain faster and slab, faster even than slide. From what I am hearing, the dwarf got knocked off forensic, all slick and quiet. We don't do that, Mr. Vimes. You played the game, you know it. Get a troll in the middle of a load of dwarfs, and he is like a fox in the... Uh, dem things with wings laying dem egg things. Fox in a hen house. That's the, uh, uh, you know, fur, big ears. Bunny. Right. Bash one dwarf and sneak out. Now troll and stop at one, Mr. Vimes. It's like you people and peanuts. The game got that right. What's this game? You never played thud? Oh, that. I don't play games, said Vimes. And on the subject of slab... You do run the biggest pipeline, just between you and me, here and now. Nah, I'm out of the old thing, said Chrysophrase, waving his cigar dismissively. You could say, I am seeing the error of my ways. From now on, it's clean living, straight down the middle. Property and financial services, that is the way forward. Glad to hear it. Besides, the kids are moving in, Chrysophrase went on, sedimentary trash, and they cut slab with bad sulphides and cooks it up with ferric chloride and crap like that. You thought slab was bad. You wait till you see slide. Slab makes a troll go and sit down to watch all the pretty colours, be no trouble to no one, nice and quiet. But slide make him feel like the biggest, strongest troll in the world.
don't need sleep, don't need food. After a few weeks, don't need life. That ain't for me. Yeah, why kill your customers, said Vimes. Low blow, Mr. Vimes, low blow. Nah, the new kids, after time they on slide themselves. Too much fighting, too much of no respect. He narrowed his eyes and leaned forward. I know names and places. It's your duty as a good citizen to tell me then, said Vimes. Ye gods, what does he think I am? But I want those names. Slide sounds nasty. Right now we need battle-crazy trolls like we need a hole in the head, which we'll probably end up getting. Can't tell ya. Dat de problem, said Chrysophrase. This ain't the time. You know what's happening out there. If the stupid dwarfs want to fight, we'll need every troll. That's what I sayin'. I tell him, my people, give Vimes a chance. Be good citizens, not rocking around the boat. People still listening to me and my associates, but not for much longer. I hope you won the case, Mr. Vimes. Captain Carrot is investigating right now, said Vimes. Chrysophrase's eyes narrowed again. Carrot Iron Fanderson, he said. The big dwarf? He a lovely boy, bright as a button. But to trolls, that won't look so good, I tell you flat. It doesn't look that good to dwarfs, if it come to that, said Vimes. But it's my watch. I'll not be told who I put on what case. You trust him? said Chrysophrase. Yes. OK, he a thinker, he shiny, but Iron Fanderson, dwarf name, dat a problem right there. But de name Vimes, dat name means a lot. Can't be bribed. He once arrested the patrician. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but honest like anything, and he don't stop digging. Chrysophrase caught Vimes's expression. That's what they say. I wishing Vimes was on this case, cause him like me, bare knuckle boy, he get at the truth soon enough. And to him I say, no troll did that ting, not like that. Forget that he's talking street troll, Vimes told himself. That's just to seem like a good old troll. This is Chrysophrase. He beat out most of the old-style mobsters, who were pretty sharp players themselves, and he holds off the thieves' guild with one hand, and that's without sitting in a pile of snow. You know he's right. But not the sharpest knife in the drawer, thank you so very much. But Captain Carrot was shiny, was he? Vimes's mind always looked for connections, and came up with, Who is Mr. Shine? Chrysophrase was absolutely still, apart from the greenish smoke spiralling up from the cigar. Then, when he spoke, his air was uncharacteristically jovial. Him? Oh, a story for kids! Kind of like a troll legend from the far-off days of long ahead, he said. Troll law says that living creatures actually move backwards through time. It's complicated. Like a folk hero? Yeah, that kind of thing. Kind of silly thing people talk about when times is tricky. Just a willy dare wisp not real. This is modern times. And that seemed to be that. Vimes stood up. All right, I've heard what you say, he said, and now I've got a watch to run. Chrysophrase puffed his cigar and flicked the ash into the frost where it sizzled. You going back to the watch house by way of Turnagain Lane? he said. No, that's well out of... Vimes stopped. There had been a hint of suggestion in the troll's voice. Give my regard to the old lady at next door to the cake shop, said the troll. Eh, uh, I will, will I? said Vimes, nonplussed. Sergeant? The door at the far end opened with a bang, and Detritus ran in, crossbow at the ready. 
Vimes, aware that one of the trolls' few faults was an inability to understand all the implications of the term safety catch, fought down a dreadful urge to dive for the ground. "'Time's coming when we all got to know where we stand in,' mused Chrysophrase, as if talking to the audience of ghostly pork. "'And who is standing next to us?' As Vimes headed to the door, the troll added, "'Give the coat to your lady, Mr. Vimes, with my compliments.' Vimes stopped dead and looked down at the coat over his shoulders. It was of some silvery fur, beautifully warm, but not as warm as the rage rising within him. He'd nearly walked out wearing it. He'd come that close. He shrugged it off and wrapped it into a ball. Quite probably several dozen small, rare, squeaky things had died to make this, but he could see to it that their deaths were not, in some small way, in vain. He threw the bundle high in the air, yelled, Sergeant! and threw himself on the floor. There was the instant slap of the bow, a sound as of a swarm of maddened bees, the plink-plink-plink of arrow fragments turning a circle of metal roof into a colander, and the smell of burnt hair. Vimes got to his feet. What was falling around him was a kind of hairy snow. He met Chrysophrase's gaze. "'Trying to bribe a watch officer is a serious offence,' he said. The troll winked. "'Honest like editing, I tell him. Nice to have this little talk, Mr. Vimes. When they were well outside, Vimes pulled Detritus into an alley, in so far as it was possible to pull a troll anywhere. OK, what do you know about Slide? he said. The troll's red eyes gleamed. I've been hearing rumours. Head to Treacle Mine Road and put a heavy squad together. Go to Turnagain Lane behind the scours. There's a wedding cake maker up there, I think. You've got a nose for drugs. Poke it around, Sergeant. Right, said Detritus. You've been told something, sir. Let's just say I think it's an earnest of good intent, shall we? said Vimes. That's good, sir, said the troll. Earnest who? Um, someone we know wants to show us what a good citizen he is. Get to it, OK? Detritus slung his crossbow over his shoulder for ease of carriage and knuckled off at high speed. Vimes leaned against the wall. This was going to be a long day. And now he... On the wall, just a little above head height, a troll had scored a rough sketch of a cut diamond. You could tell troll graffiti easily. They did it with a fingernail, and it was usually an inch deep in the masonry. Next to the diamond was scored Shine. Ahem, said a small voice in his pocket. Vimes sighed and pulled out the gooseberry while still staring at the word. Yes. You said you didn't want to be interrupted, said the imp defensively. Well, what have you got to say? It's eleven minutes to six, insert name here, said the imp meekly. Good grief, why didn't you tell me? Vimes looked aghast. Because you said you didn't want to be interrupted, the imp quavered. Yes, but not... Vimes stopped. Eleven minutes. He couldn't run it, not at this time of day. Six o'clock is important, he muttered. You didn't tell me that, said the imp, holding its head in its hands. You just said no interruptions. I'm really, really sorry. Shine forgotten, Vimes looked around desperately at the nearby buildings. There wasn't much use for Clax Towers down here, where the slaughterhouse district met the docks, but he spotted the big semaphore tower atop the dock superintendent's office. Get up there, he ordered, opening the box. Tell them you've come from me, and this is priority one, right? They're to tell Sidopolis Yard where I'm starting from. I'll cross the river on Misbegot Bridge and head along Prout's. The officers at the yard will know what this is all about. Go! 
The imp went from despair to enthusiasm in an instant. It saluted. Yes, indeed, sir. The Blue Nose TM Integrated Messenger Service will not let you down, insert name here. I shall interface right away. It leapt down and became a disappearing blur of very pale green. Vimes ran down to the dockside and began to race upriver past the ships. The docks were always too crowded, and the road was an obstacle course of bales and ropes and piles of crates, with an argument every ten yards. But Vimes was a runner by nature, and knew all the ways to make progress in the city's crowded streets. He dodged and leapt, jinked and weaved, and, where necessary, barged. A rope tripped him up, he rolled upright. A stevedore bumped into him, Vimes laid him out with an uppercut and speeded up in case the man had chums around. This was important. A shiny four-horse carriage swung out of Monkey Street with two footmen clinging to the back of it. Vimes speeded up in a desperate burst, grabbed a handhold, pulled himself up between the astonished footmen, dragged himself across the swaying roof, and dropped down onto the seat beside the young driver. Sydney watch, he announced, flashing his badge. Keep going straight ahead. Uh, but I'm supposed to turn left onto— the young man began. And give it a touch of the whip, if you please, said Vimes, ignoring him. This is important. Oh, right. Death-defying high-speed chase, is it? said the coachman, enthusiasm rising. Right. I'm the boy for that. You got your man right here, sir. Do you know I can make this carriage go along for fifty yards on two wheels? Only old Miss Robinson won't let me. Right side or left side, just say the word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, just... Vines began as the whip cracked overhead. Of course, getting the horses to run along on two legs was the trick. Actually, it's more of a hop, you might say, the coachman went on, turning his hat around for minimum wind resistance. Here, want to see my wheelie? Not especially, said Vimes, staring ahead. The hooves don't half race sparks when I do me wheelie, I can tell you. Yeah. The scenery was blurring. Ahead was the cut-through leading to two-pint dock. It was normally covered by a swing bridge. Normally. It was swung now. Vimes could see the masts of a ship being warped out of the dock and into the river. Oh, don't you bother about that, sir, yelled the coachman beside him. We'll go along the quay and jump it. You can't jump a two-master with a four-horse carriage, man. Oh, I bet you can if you aim between the masts, sir. Yeah, yeah. Ahead of the coach, men were running for cover. Vimes pushed the boy back into his seat, grabbed a handful of reins, put both feet against the brake lever, and hauled. The wheels locked. The horses began to turn. The coach slid, the metal rims of the wheels sending up sparks and the throaty scream of metal. The horses turned some more. The coach began to swing, dragging the horses with it, whirling them out like fairground mounts. Their hooves made trails of fire across the cobblestones. At this point, Vimes let go of everything, gripped the underside of the seat with one hand, held onto the rail with the other, shut his eyes, and waited for all the noise to die away. Blessedly, it did. Only one little sound remained, a petulant banging on the coach roof, caused, probably, by a walking stick. A querulous, elderly female voice could be heard saying, "'Johnny, have you been driving fast again, young man?' A bootlegger's turn, Johnny breathed, looking at a team of four steaming horses now facing back the way they'd come. I am impressed. He turned to Vimes, who wasn't there. The men moving the ship had dropped their ropes and run at the sight of the coach and four, spinning down the road toward them. The dock entrance was narrow. A man could easily scramble up a rope onto the deck, run across the ship, and let himself down on the cobbles on the other side. And this a man had just done. Speeding along, Vimes could see that Miss Begot Bridge was going to be a struggle. An overloaded hay wagon had wedged itself between the rickety houses that lined the bridge, ripped out part of someone's upper story, and had shed some of its load in the process. There was a fight going on between the carter and the unimpressed owner of the new bungalow. 
Valuable seconds were spent struggling over and through the hay until he was hurrying through the backed-up traffic to the other end of the bridge. Ahead of him was the wide thoroughfare known as Prout's, full of vehicles and uphill all the way. He wasn't going to make it. It must be gone five to six already. The thought of it, the thought of that little face. Mr. Vimes! He turned. A mail coach had just pulled out onto the road behind him and was coming up at a trot. Carrots was sitting beside the driver and waving frantically at him. Get on the step, sir, he yelled. You don't have much time. Vimes started to run and, as the coach drew level, jumped onto the door's step and hung on. Isn't this the mail coach to Quirm? he shouted, as the driver urged the horses into a canter. That's right, sir, said Carrots. I explained it was a matter of extreme importance. Vimes redoubled his grip. The mail coaches had good horses. The wheels, not very far away from him, were already a blur. How did you get here so quick? he yelled. Short cut through the apothecary garden, sir. What? That little walk by the river? That's never wide enough for a coach like this. It was a bit of a squeeze, sir, yes. It got easier when the coach lamp scraped off. Vimes took in the state of the coach's side. The paintwork was scored all along it. All right, he shouted. Tell the driver I'll meet the bills, of course. But it'll be wasted, Carrot. Park Lane will be jam-packed at this time of day. Don't worry, sir. I should hang on very tight if I were you, sir, shouted Carrot above the rising wind. Vimes heard the whip crack. This was a real mail coach. Mailbags don't care if they're comfortable. He could feel the acceleration. Park Lane would be coming up very soon. Vimes couldn't see much because the wind of their flight was making his eyes water, but up ahead was one of the city's most fashionable traffic jams. It was bad enough at any time of day, but early evening was particularly bad, owing to the Ankh-Morpork belief that right-of-way was the prerogative of the heaviest vehicle or the gobbiest driver. There were minor collisions all the time, which were inevitably followed by both vehicles blocking the junction while the drivers got down to discussing road safety issues with reference to the first weapon they could get their hands on. And it was into this maelstrom of jostling horses, scurrying pedestrians, and cursing drivers that the mail coach was heading, apparently at a full gallop. He shut his eyes, eyes, and then, hearing a change in the sound of the wheels, risked opening them again. The coach flew across the junction. Vimes had a momentary glimpse of a huge line fuming and shouting behind a couple of immovable troll officers before they were spinning on down toward Schoon Avenue. "'You close the road! You close the road!' he yelled as they plunged on. "'And Kingsway, sir, just in case!' Carrot shouted down. "'You closed two major roads, two whole damn roads, in the rush hour!' "'Yes, sir,' said Carrot. "'It was the only way!' Vimes hung on, speechless. Would he have dared to do that?' but that was carrot all over. There was a problem, and now it's gone. Admittedly, the whole city is probably solid with wagons by now, but that's a new problem. He'd be home in time. Would a minute have mattered? No, probably not, although his young son appeared to have a very accurate internal clock. Possibly even two minutes would be okay, three minutes even. You could go to five, perhaps, but that was just it. If you could go to five minutes, then you'd go to ten, then half an hour, a couple of hours and not see your son all evening. So that was that. Six o'clock, prompt, every day, read to young Sam. No excuses. He'd promised himself that. No excuses. No excuses at all. Once you had a good excuse, you opened the door to bad excuses. He had nightmares about being too late. He had a lot of nightmares about young Sam. They involved empty cots and darkness. It had all been too good. In a few short years, he, Sam Vimes, had gone up in the world like a balloon. He was a duke, 
He commanded the watch. He was powerful. He was married to a woman whose compassion, love, and understanding he knew a man such as he did not deserve, and he was as rich as creosote. Fortune had rained its gravy, and he'd been the man with the big bowl. And it had all happened so fast. And then young Sam had come along. At first it had been fine. The baby was, well, a baby, all lolling head and burping and unfocused eyes, entirely the preserve of his mother. And then one evening his son had turned and looked directly at Vimes, with eyes that for his father outshone the lamps of the world, and fear had poured into Sam Vimes's life in a terrible wave. All this good fortune, all this fierce joy, it was wrong. Surely the universe could not allow this amount of happiness in one man, not without presenting a bill. Somewhere a big darkness was cresting, and when it broke over his head it would wash everything away. Some days he was sure he could hear its distant roar. Shouting incoherent thanks, he leapt down as the coach slowed, flailed to stay upright, and skidded into his driveway. The front door was already opening when he raced toward it, scattering gravel, and there was Willikins holding up the book. Vimes grabbed it and pounded up the stairs as, down in the city, the clocks began to mark various approximations of the hour of six o'clock. Sybil had been adamant about not having a nursemaid. Vimes, for once, had been even more adamant that they got one, and a head cavern girl for the pedigree dragon pens outside. A body could only do so much after all. He'd won. Purity, who seemed a decent type, had just finished settling young Sam into his cot when Vimes staggered in. She gave him about one-third of a curtsy before she caught his pained expression and remembered last week's impromptu lecture on the rights of man, and then she hurried out. It was important that no one else was here. This moment in time was just for the Sams. Young Sam pulled himself up against the cot's rails and said, Da! The world went soft. Vimes stroked his son's hair. It was funny, really. He spent the day yelling and shouting and talking and bellowing. But here, in this quiet time, smelling, thanks to purity, of soap, he never knew what to say. He was tongue-tied in the presence of a fourteen-month-old baby. All the things he thought of saying, like, "'Who's daddy's little boy, then?' sounded horribly false, as though he'd got them from a book. There was nothing to say, nor, in this soft pastel room, anything that needed to be said. There was a grunt from under the cot. Dribble, the dragon, was dozing there. Ancient, fireless, with ragged wings and no teeth, he clambered up the stairs every day and took up station under the cot. No one knew why. He made little whistling noises in his sleep. The happy silence enveloped Fimes, but couldn't last. There was the reading of the picture book to be undertaken. That was the meaning of six o'clock. It was the same book every day. The pages of said book were rounded and soft where young Sam had chewed them, but to one person in this nursery this was the book of books, the greatest story ever told. Vimes didn't need to read it any more, he knew it by heart. It was called Where's My Cow? The unidentified complainant has lost their cow. That was the story, really. Page one started promisingly. Where's my cow? Is that my cow? It goes bar. It is a sheep. No, that's not my cow. Then the author began to get to grips with their material. Where's my cow? Is that my cow? It goes nay. It is a horse. No, that's not my cow. At this point, the author had reached an agony of creation and was writing from the racked depths of their soul. Where's my cow? 
Is that my cow? It goes, hurrah. It is a hippopotamus. No, that's not my cow. This was a good evening. Young Sam was already grinning widely and crowing along with the plot. Eventually the cow would be found. It was that much of a page-turner. Of course, some suspense was lent by the fact that all other animals were presented in some way that could have confused a kitten, who perhaps had been raised in a darkened room. The horse was standing in front of a hat-stand, as they so often did, and the hippo was eating at a trough against which was an upturned pitchfork. Seen from the wrong direction, the tableau might look for just one second like a cow. Young Sam loved it anyway. It must have been the most cuddled book in the world. Nevertheless, it bothered Vimes, even though he'd got really good at the noises and would go up against any man in his rendition of the Hurug. But is this a book for a city kid? When would he ever hear those noises? In the city, the only sound those animals would make was sizzle. But the nursery was full of the conspiracy, with bar lambs and teddy bears and fluffy ducklings everywhere he looked. One evening, after a trying day, he'd tried the Vimes street version. Where's my daddy? Is that my daddy? He goes, Buglet, Millennium Hand and Shrimp. He is foul old Ron. No, that's not my daddy. It had been going really well when Vimes heard a meaningful little cough from the doorway, wherein stood Sybil. Next day, young Sam, with a child's unerring instinct for this sort of thing, said, Buglet, to purity. And that, although Sybil never raised the subject when they were alone, was that. From then on, Sam stuck rigidly to the authorised version. He recited it tonight, while wind rattled the windows, and this little nursery world, with its pink and blue peace, its creatures who were ever so very soft and woolly and fluffy, seemed to enfold them both. On the nursery clock, a little woolly lamb rocked the seconds away. When he not quite awoke in twilight, with ragged strands of dark sleep filling his mind, Vimes stared in incomprehension at the room. Panic filled him. What was this place? Why were there all these grinning animals? What was lying on his foot? Who was this doing the asking, and why was he wrapped in a blue shawl with ducks on it? Blessed recollection flowed in. Young Sam was fast asleep, with Vimes's helmet clutched like a teddy bear, and Dribble, always on the lookout for somewhere warm to slump, had rested his head on Vimes's boot. Already the leather was covered with goo. Vimes carefully retrieved his helmet, gathered the shawl around him, and wandered down into the big front hall. He could see a light on under the door of the library, and so, still slightly muzzy, he pushed his way in. Two watchmen stood up. Sybil turned in her chair by the fire. Vimes felt the ducks slither down his shoulders slowly and end up in a heap on the floor. "'I let you sleep, Sam,' said Lady Sybil. "'You didn't get in this morning till after three. "'Everyone's double-shifting, dear,' said Sam, daring Carrot and Sally to even think about telling anyone they'd seen the boss wearing a blue shawl covered in ducks. "'I've got to set a good example.' "'I'm sure you intend to, Sam, but you look like a horrible warning,' said Sybil. "'When did you last eat?' "'I had a lettuce, tomato, and bacon sandwich, dear,' he said, endeavouring by tone of his voice to suggest that the bacon had been a mere condiment rather than a slab barely covered by the bread. "'I expect you jolly well did.' said Sybil, rather more accurately conveying the fact that she didn't believe a word of it. "'Captain Carrot has something to tell you. Now you sit down, and I'm going to see what's happened to dinner.' When she bustled out in the direction of the kitchens, Vimes turned to the watchman and debated for a moment whether to give that sheepish little grin and eye-roll that between men means women, eh? And decided not to, on the basis that the watchman consisted of Lance Constable von Humperding, who'd think he was a fool, and Captain Carrot, who wouldn't know what it meant.'
he settled instead on, "'Well?' "'We did the best we could, sir,' said Carrot. "'I was right. That mine is a very unhappy place. Murder scenes usually are, yes. Actually, I don't think we found the murder scene, sir. Didn't you see the body?' "'Yes, sir, I think. Really, sir, you had to be there.' "'I don't think I can go through with this,' Angua hissed as she headed along Treacle Street again. "'What's wrong?' said Carrot. Angua jerked her thumb over her shoulder. "'Her! Vampires and werewolves, not good company!' "'But she's a black ribboner!' Carrot protested mildly. "'She doesn't—she doesn't have to do anything. She just is. For one of us, being around a vampire is like the worst bad hair day you can imagine. And believe me, a werewolf knows what a really bad hair day is.' Is it the smell? Well, that's not good, but it's more than that. They're so poised, so perfect. I get near her and I feel hairy. I can't help it. It goes back thousands of years. It's the image. Vampires are always so cool, so in control, but werewolves are, well, shambling animals, underdogs. But that's not true. A lot of black ribboners are totally neurotic, and you're so sleek and... Not when I'm around vampires. They trigger off something. Look, stop trying to be logical about it, will you? I hate it when you get logical on me. Why didn't Mr. Vimes hold out? All right, all right, I'm on top of it. But it's hard, that's all. I'm sure it's not easy for her, either, Carrot began. Angua gave him a look. But that's him, she thought. He really does think like that. It's just that he doesn't know when saying something like that is a really bad idea. Not easy for her... When was it ever easy for me? At least she probably doesn't have to stash changes of clothes around the city. Okay, going cold bat can't be nice, but we get cold bat every month. And when do I ever rip out a throat? I hunt chickens, and I pay for them in advance. Does she suffer from PLT? I don't think so. Oh, gods, and it's already well past waxing gibbous tonight. I can feel my hair growing. Bloody vampires! They make such a big thing about not being murderous bloodsuckers anymore. They get all the sympathy, even his. All this flashed past in a second. She said, Let's just get down there and get it done and get out, shall we? There was still a crowd hanging around near the entrance. Among them was Otto Shriek, who gave Carrot a little shrug. There were still guards on duty, too, but it was clear that someone had been talking to them. They nodded to the squad when they arrived. One of them even opened the door very politely. Carrot beckoned the other watchman closer. "'Everything we say will be overheard, understand?' he said. "'Everything. So be careful. I remember, as far as they are concerned, you can't see in the dark.' He led the way inside to where Helm Clever stood, beaming and edgy. Oh, "'Welcome, headbanger,' said the dwarf. Uh, "'If we are using more porkian, I would prefer Captain Carrot,' said Carrot. "'As you wish, Smelter.' said the dwarf. The elevator awaits. As they descended, Carrot said, What power's this, please? A device, said Helmclever, pride breaking out over his nervousness. Really? You have many devices, said Carrot. An axle and an average bar. An average bar? I'd only ever heard of them. We are fortunate. I will be happy to show it to you. It is invaluable for food preparation, Helmclever gabbled, and down below we have a number of cubes of varying powers— Nothing may be withheld from the smelter. I am ordered to show you everything you wish to see, and tell you everything you wish to know. Thank you, said Carrot, as the elevator stopped in blackness speckled with the corpse glow of worms. How large are your diggings here? 
"'I cannot tell you that,' said Helm Clever quickly. "'I do not know. Ah, here is Ardent. I will go back up.' "'No, Helm Clever, remain with us, please,' said a darker shadow in the gloom. "'You should see this, too. Good day to you, Captain Carrot, and—' Ardent managed something like a smile. "'Ladies, please follow me. I am sorry for the lack of light. Perhaps your eyes will adapt.' I will be happy to describe to you any object that you touch. Now I will lead you to the place where the dreadful occurrence occurred. Angua looked around as they were led along the tunnel, noting that Carrot had to walk with his knees slightly bent. Headbanger, eh? Funny you never mentioned that to the lads. Every dozen yards or so, Ardent would stop in front of a round door, invariably with the worms clustered around it, and turn a wheel. The doors creaked when they opened, and they opened with a ponderousness that suggested they were heavy. Here and there in the tunnels were things, mechanical things, hanging from the wall and clearly there with a purpose. Worms glowed around them. She hadn't got a clue what the objects were for, but Carrot greeted them with enthusiastic glee like a schoolboy. "'You have airbills and water boots, Mr. Ardent. I've only ever heard of them.' You were raised on the good rock of Copperhead, were you not, Captain? Mining in this wet plain is like digging tunnels in the sea. And the iron doors are quite watertight, are they? Yes, indeed, airtight, too. Remarkable. I should like to visit again when this wretched business is over. A dwarf mine under the city. It's quite hard to believe. I'm sure that could be arranged, Captain. And that was Carrot at work. He could sound so innocent, so friendly, so stupid, in a puppy-dog kind of way, and then he suddenly became this big block of steel and you walked right into it. By the smell of it, Sally was watching him with interest. Be sensible, Angua told herself. Don't let the vampire get to you. Don't start believing you're stupid and hairy. Think clearly. You do have a brain. Surely people could go mad living in this murk. Angua found it easier to close her eyes. Down here her nose worked better without distraction. Darkness helped. With her eyes shut, various faint colours danced across her brain. Without the stink of the damned vampire, though, she would have been able to pick up a lot more. The stench poisoned every sensation. Hold on, don't think like that. You're just letting your mind do the thinking for you. Hang on, that's wrong. There was a faint outline in the corner of the next chamber, which was quite large. It looked like an outline, a chalk outline, a glowing chalk outline. "'I understand this is the approved method,' said Ardent. "'You will be aware of night chalk, Captain. It is made of crushed worm. The glue persists for about a day. On the floor here you will see, or rather, you will feel the club that dealt him his death blow, just under your hand, Captain.' There is blood on it. I regret the darkness, but we kept the worms out. They would have feasted, you understand. Angua saw Carrot, outlined in his permanent smell of soap, feel his way across the space. His hand touched another metal door. Where does this go, sir? he said, tapping it. To the outer chambers. Was it open at the time the troll attacked the grag? You really think a troll did? Angua wondered. I believe so, said Ardent. Then I would like it open now, please. I cannot agree to that request, Captain. I did not intend it to be a request, sir. After it has been opened, I will need to know who was in the mine at the time the troll broke in. I will need to speak to them, and to whoever discovered the body. Harag, Jakagra! For Angua, the smell of Ardent changed. 
Under all those layers the dwarf was suddenly uncertain. He'd walked right into it. He hesitated for several seconds before replying. I will endeavour to meet your, your requirements, Smelter, he said. I will leave you now. Come, Helm Clever. Graz, Davaj, said Carrot. Krag, Ragna, Rudged. Ardent stepped forward, uncertainty growing, and held out both hands, palms down. For a moment, until his sleeves slipped, Angua saw a faintly glowing symbol on his right wrist. Every deep downer had a drut as unique evidence of identity in a world of shrouded figures. She'd heard they were made by tattooing verm blood under the skin. It sounded painful. Carrot took his hands for a moment and then let go. Thank you, he said, as if the dwarfish interlude had not taken place. The two dwarfs hurried away. In the thick darkness the watchmen were left alone. What was all that about? said Angua. Just reassuring him, said Carrot cheerfully. He reached into a pocket. Now we've arrived, let's have some light in here, shall we? Angua smelled his hand, moved vigorously across the wall once or twice as if he was painting. There arose an aroma of pork pie. Soon be brighter, he said. Captain Carrot, this wasn't where— Sally began. All in good time, Lance Constable, said Carrot firmly. For now we just observe. But I must tell you, later on, Lance Constable, said Carrot a little louder, Verms were flowing around the open door they'd arrived by and across the stone. By the way, uh, Sally, will you be all right if we view the body? That's right, Angua thought. Think of her. I've dealt with blood every day. Walk a mile in my nostrils. Old blood will not be a problem, sir, said Sally. There's some in here, but there's— I expect they've set up a morgue, said Carrots quickly. The death rites are quite complex. Morgue? A home away from home for you, my dear, snarled Angua's inner wolf. The worms were spreading out now, crawling across the wall with a purpose. She crouched down to bring her nose nearer to the floor. I can smell dwarfs, lots of dwarfs, Angua thought. Hard to smell trolls, especially underground. Blood on the club, like a flower. Dwarf smell on the club, but there's dwarf smell everywhere. I can smell... Hang on, that's familiar. The floor mostly smelled of slime and loam. Carrot's footprint showed up, and so did hers. There was a lot of dwarf smell, and she could still just make out the smell of their concern. This is where they found the body, then. But this patch of mud here, that was different. It had been trodden into the floor, but it smelled just like the heavy clay from up around Quarry Lane. Who lived in Quarry Lane? Most of the trolls in Ankh Morpork. A clue. She smiled in the dwindling darkness. The trouble with clues, as Mr. Vimes always said, was that they were so easy to make. You could walk around with a pocket full of the bloody things. The darkness was disappearing because the light was growing. Angua looked up. There was a huge, bright symbol on the wall where Carrot had touched it. He dragged some meat across it, she thought. They turned up for the feast. Ardent came back in with Helmclever trailing after him. He got as far as... The door here can be opened again, but alas, we... And stopped. They were happy verms. By the standards of greeny-white glow, they were brilliant. Behind Carrot there was now a gently glowing circle with two diagonal lines slashed through it. Both dwarfs stared at it as if in shock. Well, let's take a look, shall we? said Carrot, apparently oblivious to all this. We, alas, the water, water, uh, not entirely watertight. Um, the other doors, the, 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 the troll caused flooding, Ardent murmured, not taking his eyes off the glow. 
"'But you say we can go through here at least,' said Carrot politely, pointing to the sealed door. "'Er, uh, yes, yes, certainly.' The steward hurried forward and produced a key. The wheel, unlocked, turned easily. Ango was acutely aware of how the muscles on Carrot's bare arms glistened and pumped as he pulled the metal door open. "'Oh, no, not yet, surely. She ought to have at least another day.' It was the vampire, that's what it was, standing there looking so innocent. Bits of her body wanted her to become a wolf right now to defend herself. There was a pillared room on the other side of the door. It smelled damp and unfinished. There were worms on the ceiling, but the floor was muddy and squelched underfoot. Angua could make out another dwarf door across the room, and there was one on either side as well. "'We take spoil to a heap on the waste ground outside,' said Ardent. "'We uh, believe the troll got in that way.' It was an unpardonable oversight. He still sounded uneasy. "'And the troll was not seen,' said Carrot, kicking at the mud. "'No, these chambers are finished. The diggers are elsewhere, and they came as soon as they could. We believe the Grag had come up here for solitude, to die at the random hand of an abomination.' "'Lucky for the troll, wasn't it, sir?' said Angua sharply. "'He just happened to wander in and stumble across Hamcrusher.' Carrot's boot struck something metallic. He kicked some more mud away. "'You've laid rails,' he said. "'You must be shifting a lot of spoil, sir.' "'Better to push than to carry,' said Ardent. "'Now I have arranged for—' "'Hold on, what's this?' said Carrot. He squatted down and pulled at something pale. "'It's a piece of bone by the look of it, on a string.' "'There are plenty of old bones,' said Ardent. "'Now I—' It came free with a gloop and grinned at them in the sickly light. "'It doesn't look very old, sir,' said Carrot. Just one breath was enough for Angua. It's a sheep skull, she said, about three months dead. Oh, another clue, she added to herself. Nice and convenient for us to find, too. Could have been dropped by the troll, said Carrot. A troll, said Ardent, backing away. It wasn't the reaction Angua had expected. Ardent had been nervous already, but now, under all those wrappings, he was on the verge of panic. You did say a troll had attacked the Grag, sir, said Carrot. But we never... I never saw that before. Why didn't we find it? Did it come back? All the doors are sealed, sir, said Carrot patiently. Aren't they? But have we sealed it in here with us? It was practically a shriek. You'd know, sir, wouldn't you? said Carrot. Trolls sort of well stand out. I must fetch guards, said Ardent, backing away towards the single open door. It could be anywhere. Then you could be heading right toward it, sir, said Angua. Ardent stopped dead for a moment, and then uttered a little whimper and ran into the dark, Helmclever on his heels. "'Well, how do we all think that went?' said Angua, with a horrible smile. "'And what was that you said to him in dwarfish? You know I am a dwarf in the brotherhood of all dwarfs?' "'Er, with emphatic certainty you know me. I observe the rights of the dwarf. What, who am I? I am the Brothers United,' said Sally carefully. "'Well done, Lance Constable,' said Carrot. "'That was an excellent translation.' "'Yes, did you bite someone clever?' said Angua. "'I am a black ribboner, Sergeant,' said Sally meekly, "'and I'm naturally good at languages. "'While we're alone, Captain, can I mention something else?' "'Certainly,' said Carrot, trying the wheel on one of the closed doors. "'I think a lot of things are wrong here, sir. "'There was something very strange about the way Ardent reacted to that skull.' Why would he think the troll was still here after all that time? A troll getting into a dwarf mine can do a lot of damage before it's stopped, said Carrot. Ardent really wasn't expecting that skull, sir, said Sally, pressing on. 
I heard his heart racing. It terrified him. Something more, sir. There's lots of city dwarfs here. Hundreds I can feel their hearts too. There are six grags. Their hearts beat very slowly. And there are other dwarfs too. Strange ones, and only a few of them. Maybe ten. That's useful to know, Lance Constable. Thank you very much. Yes, I don't know how we managed before you came, said Angua. She walked quickly over to the other side of the dank room, so that they wouldn't see her face. She needed fresh air, not the pervasive, clinging, old root-cellar reek of this place. Her head was full of shouting. The Temperance League, not one drop. Did anyone believe that for one minute? But everyone wanted to fall for it, because vampires could be so charming. Of course they were. It was part of being a vampire. It was the only way to get people to stay the night in the dreadful castle. Everyone knew a leopard couldn't change his shorts, but no, stick on a stupid black ribbon and learn the words for lips that touch Icor shall never touch mine, and they fall for it every time. But werewolves, well, they were just sad monsters, weren't they? Never mind that life was a daily struggle with the inner wolf. Never mind that you had to force yourself to walk past every lamp post. Never mind that in every petty argument you had to fight back the urge to settle it all with just one bite. Never mind that because everyone knew that a creature that was a wolf and a human combined was a kind of dog. They were expected to behave. Part of her was shouting that this wasn't so, that this was just PLT and the known effects of a vampire's presence, but somehow, now, with the smells around her becoming so strong that they were approaching solidity, she did not want to listen. She wanted to smell the world. She was practically climbing into her own nose. After all, that was why she was in the watch, wasn't it? For her nose? New smell, new smell. Sharp blue-grey of lichen, the browns and purples of old carrion, undertones of wood and leather. Even as a full wolf she'd never tasted the air so forensically as this. Something else, sharp, chemical. The air was full of the smell of damp and dwarfs, but these little traces ran through it like a piccolo hornpipe through a requiem, and formed one thing. Troll, she croaked. Troll! Troll with skull belt and headlocks. On slab, or something like it. Troll! Angua was almost barking at the door now. Open the door, this way! She was barely needing her eyes now, but there on the metal of the door in charcoal someone had drawn a circle with two diagonal lines through it. Suddenly Carrot was by her side. At least he had the decency not to say, Are you sure? as he rattled the big wheel. The door was locked. I don't think there's water behind this, he said. Oh, really? Angua managed. You know that was just to keep us out. Carrot turned. Running toward them was a squad of dwarfs. They were heading for the door as though quite oblivious to the presence of the watchman. Don't let them go through first, said Angua through gritted teeth. Trail is faint. Carrot drew his sword with one hand and held up his badge with the other. City watch, he roared. Lower your weapons, please. Thank you. The squad slowed, which meant that, in the nature of these things, those at the back piled into the hesitant ones in front. This is a crime scene, Carrot announced. I am still the smelter. Mr. Ardent, are you there? Do you have guards on the other side of this door? Ardent pushed through the throng of dwarfs. No, I, I believe not, he said. Is the troll still behind it? Carrot glanced at Sally, who shrugged. Vampires had never developed the ability to listen for troll hearts. There was no point. Possibly, but I don't think so, said Carrot. Please unlock it. We might yet find a trail. "'Captain Carrot, you know that the safety of the mine must always come first, said Ardent. "'Of course you must give chase. "'But first 
We will open the door and make certain there is no danger behind it. You must concede us that. Let's them, hissed Angua. It'll be a clear ascent. I'll be okay. Carrot nodded and whispered back, Well done. Under her flesh she felt her tail want to wag. She wanted to lick his face. It was the dog part of her doing the thinking. You're a good dog. It was important to be a good dog.'